Thank you so much for leading us this morning, and uh, we had sort of the, the ladies' effect today. Isn't that great? So thank you, ladies and team. Um, my name is Tom Nelson. Welcome to uh, the Leewood campus at Christ Community. We're glad you're here. Hope you're having a good summer. Uh, for me, the summer is going very fast. That is a sign of getting older. I don't know, time goes faster, but uh, it's been a glorious summer, and you're loving the weather. I mean, it is amazing. I'm a Minnesota boy, some of you know, and uh, this is like a Minnesota summer, and it's God smiling on us, I'm telling you. But we are really glad you're here, and we hope you sense the presence of Christ. If you're visiting today, especially want to give you a warm welcome, and uh, hope you sense uh, how we love Jesus and want to make him known in the world. So thank you for being here. I'd like to pray before I open God's word this morning. So if we'd bow our heads and hearts, let us seek the Lord together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we gather in your name. All of us come into this place with needs, longings, concerns, dreams, struggles in the brokenness of our lives. So Father, in your grace and in your encouragement, speak truth and grace into our lives that we may hear you afresh. Father, do a new work through your spirit. Do a new work in each one of our lives. For your glory and your praise, we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that one of the most painful words of the English language is goodbye. What do you think? I was reminded of that this past weekend when Liz and I said goodbye to our daughter, Sarah. We had the joy of spending a weekend in Washington, D.C., where she's doing an internship. But there's something about saying goodbye to your children. Even, hopefully, we'll see her at Thanksgiving, but there's something when I say goodbye to Sarah that puts a pit in my stomach. I hate goodbyes. I don't like them at all. In fact, goodbyes are very painful things to me. But not only to me, I see the pain of goodbye in the faces of others. I see the pain of goodbye of dropping your child off the very first time at preschool. I see the goodbye pain of parents taking their freshman college students on move-in day, and making that long way home. Goodbyes are a big pain. I see the pain on people's faces by the bedside of a loved one who's dying. And I see the pain of goodbyes and the stinging tears that drop over a flower-draped casket at a burial service. Goodbyes, to me, are some of the most heart-wrenching things in life. And the question I have this morning first is, why are goodbyes so difficult for us? What is it about goodbyes that put this deep pit in our stomach, that seems so foreign to us, yet confront us almost on a daily basis? The Christian story addresses this foreign pain. And that is that we were not created with goodbyes in mind. That we were created for ongoing relationships. That is until human rebellion was swept up into a cosmic rebellion where sin and death entered the world. And with sin and death, goodbyes came with it. But can a goodbye ever be good news? This morning's text gives us a hopeful answer to that question, because this text points us 
to a goodbye that makes it possible for all goodbyes to one day end. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to John's Gospel in the New Testament, John chapter 16. Now, as we enter into this text together, John chapter 16 is a section of the Gospel of John that is often called the Upper Room Discourse. If you Google Wikipedia, it'll be called the Farewell Discourse. So it's not so much the label, it is to understand the literary continuity of these chapters as one conversation. In chapters 13 through 17, it is a literary unit. Jesus is having a conversation, an intimate conversation with his closest friends, of whom John is perhaps the closest, who writes this gospel. And so we walk into this text, we understand that Jesus is about to die. It's the night before his crucifixion and resurrection. And he's having this intimate conversation in an upper room in Jerusalem, in a home. And Jesus is about to shatter their world with his words. Jesus tells them he is leaving them. Now, can you imagine what that must have felt like if you were one of Jesus' closest friends? You have left your jobs, you have left your family, you have left your home to travel with Rabbi Jesus for three years. And now... He is telling you goodbye. You have experienced the great pains of saying goodbye to family and friends, and now he is looking you in the eye and saying, I'm leaving you. Can you imagine what you would have felt like? How confused or devastated, how helpless you would feel at that moment. So as we enter into this conversation in the Upper Room Discourse, We must not miss the dark clouds of sin and sadness that hang on every word from 13 through 17. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase the message, brilliantly paraphrases the the mood, the very difficult mood, the unbearable mood of the moment as he paraphrases Jesus' words with these words. The longer I have talked, Jesus says, the sadder you have become. And that is the intense feeling of the progression from 13 to 17. Yet in the midst of a very sad goodbye, we feel it in every word, Jesus offers some very good news. So when we enter this text beginning in chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples basically this, I'm leaving, guys, but I am going to come back. But in the meantime, help is on the way. Let's just say help in a capital H, the helper. So as we enter this text, chapter 14, 15, and 16 are progressions of revelation of this helper. In chapter 14, Jesus says the helper will not only be by your side, the helper will indwell you. He goes on to clarify in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit will teach you what I have not yet taught you. And then in chapter 15, Jesus continues saying this, helper will help you tell others about me. So as we come to chapter 16, they are hearing Jesus' words. They are getting more sad by the moment. They are not tracking well with Jesus. They have no idea what he's saying. They are feeling confused and powerless. And they must, like all of us, if we enter into their sandals, must have wondered some big questions. They must have wondered, who is this helper? 
What does this helper do, and how is this helper going to help us? These are the three questions I would like to explore this morning in this text. Who is the helper? What does the helper do, and how does the helper help us? First, who is the helper? Now, to understand this, let's keep in mind something very unusual in this text. If we miss it, we miss the text. John, the writer, was fluent in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Thank God for that. And Jesus, in his conversation with disciples, most likely spoke Hebrew. This was originally Hebrew, or perhaps Aramaic, which is a derivative language of Hebrew. And John translates Jesus' words that he hears with his ears, and he translates it into common Greek for the world. Now, why do I say this? Because as a thoughtful reader of the text, to understand that John translates Jesus' word for the Holy Spirit in a very unique way. It is the Greek word parakletos, or parakletos, depending on your accent. This word combines two Greek words that mean to come alongside of something. And what's important for us to grasp is that John, the writer, is the only Bible writer that uses this word to describe the Holy Spirit. Jesus will specifically say in 14, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. But the emphasis is on this unique word. John's the only one that uses it. And in this text, he uses it several times to describe the Holy Spirit. And one more time in his epistle, the first epistle, to describe Jesus himself. This is why translators of this text have so many different labels or names for the parakletos. You will see this in translations. If you have a translation, it might say the counselor or the advocate or the comforter or the friend. Now, what's important for us to grasp here is Jesus uses an unusual word for the third member of the triune God. He is not bringing out a new idea. In a sense, the Holy Spirit is all through the Christian story. But he is revealing something new about the Spirit. Throughout the biblical storyline, the Holy Spirit is given a prominent role. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, right away we see the Spirit of God hovering over original creation. We also see the Spirit of God in the Old Testament prophets of bringing new creation life to us. For example, Ezekiel 36 is just a sample. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And of course, later in the Bible, we will see how the book of Acts and all the way to the end of Revelation, the Holy Spirit is given a high prominence. Now, what I want to grasp for us, or all of us to grasp, is it's fair to say that Jesus uses a very unusual word for the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand that. Also, I think it's fair to say, for most of us, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, is that God the Father is one thing, Jesus is another thing, but the Holy Spirit is really hard for us to grasp, is he not? The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force like Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars fan, but he's not the force. In case you're wondering, he's not. Remember a few years ago, the very um, popular book called The Shack, And the Holy Spirit in that novel was an Asian woman. Just interesting to know. Uh, Nor is the Holy Spirit a scary ghost. Um, Boy, I don't know how we got that word. As a kid, it scared me to death. I remember my mom shutting off the lights at night, you know, and I'm thinking about there are ghosts in my closet. And then I heard in church in the morning, a holy ghost. I knew that was a bad ghost, you know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) 
I knew as a kid that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost was nothing to mess with. I wasn't really sure if this was the Holy Ghost on steroids. I mean, I'm just, my imagination went wild. And most of us, I think, regardless of our faith orientation and focus, the Holy Spirit is really hard for us to grasp. And let me just say right up front something important pastorally as we go into this text. There are many different perspectives and views on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And this can create differences in the church. Let me just tell you, the very first church split between Orthodox and Roman Catholicism was on the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing new. But the differences of the Holy Spirit do, about how we understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit do not need to lead to disunity if we understand that we have different orientations to spirituality in many ways. Some of us here are more experiential in our faith orientation. We long for more emphasis on the Spirit. You know, we want to experientially go deep or deeper. Others of us uh, who are more rationalistic, I don't mean that pejoratively in any way, but in our faith orientation are a bit guarded about sort of going off the deep end. We know that there are lots of abuses and doctrinal errors and stuff, toxic stuff that can come with it. And some of us here this morning maybe are checking out the Christian faith and you're going, wow, that's bizarre. Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, I'm not sure whether I buy it at all. In in a modern world, in a science-defined world, it sounds like hocus-pocus from the ancient world. So all of us probably process what I'm saying differently. So wherever you find yourself today, let's be open to take a closer look at what brilliant Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. And this is where he focuses. Not only who the Holy Spirit is, but what does the Holy Spirit do? Question two. This is the primary focus of Jesus' text. Look at me at verses 8 through 11. Now notice, Jesus says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, to understand how we are to approach the role of the Spirit, we need to understand Jesus gives us two main teachings about the Spirit that should guide our understanding. What does this helper do? First, you'll notice the Holy Spirit shines the light of truth in a dark world. Notice we, the verse Verse 8, the word convict. This is a difficult translation because in English, we often think of a courtroom. You know, like a John Grisham. Are you John Grisham fans? I mean, John Grisham has the most amazing novels, and there's always this courtroom scene where, you know, you're on pins and needles. Who's going to be convicted? It's the drama of a courtroom. But that's not the focus of this text. The focus of this text, in the original language, is an illumination. It's the idea of exposing the darkness with light and the light of truth. One of the things that I love most about our house, and I love our house and the woman I get to share it with, is that our back deck not only is a great place for bird watching, um, but it it has these motion-driven spotlights on the back. You know, you walk by it and they turn on in the dark. And uh, one thing I love about going out our back door 
in the deck, even if it's really dark out, the minute I open that door, I walk out, what happens? You know, it's like I'm in a spotlight. My neighbors, I'm sure, love it. You know, it's like massive light that comes on. But that's the picture here. The Holy Spirit has a primary mission of spotlighting the darkness with truth. Some people, scholars, have said that the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is a floodlight ministry. I like that. And notice what Jesus says here. This is new revelation that Jesus gives his disciples. What does the spotlight of truth expose? What does the Holy Spirit expose in a dark world? Notice Jesus' progression. First, the the Holy Spirit, or the helper, spots light sin. That is, what is wrong in the world? both in our motives and in our actions. Jesus will point out in verse 9 more what he means. And that is that the essence of sin is faithlessness, an unwillingness to believe or to fully trust Jesus. And the Holy Spirit reveals not only the ugliness of our badness, but the emptiness of our self-righteous goodness. Now notice, second, the Holy Spirit, the helper, using Jesus' language, spotlights righteousness. That is, what is right in the world, the good, the true, and the beautiful, that which conforms to God's desire and design for his good world, that which conforms to God's character. Now, notice also, third, the Holy Spirit spotlights the truth of judgment. That is, why right and wrong matter and why we need a Savior. And in verse 11, you'll notice that we are given the final stamp of justice when God will ultimately make all things right and our rebellion along with the cosmic rebellion will once be settled for all in the judgment of Satan. Now, Andrew Andrew Murray is a wonderful writer. And if you've never been exposed to Andrew Murray, one of the things we try to do at Christ Community is give you exposure to great writers of the past. I highly encourage you to read Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray, in his book, The Ministry of Intercession, speaks so powerfully about this particular area. He speaks to us how the Spirit of God shines the gospel light of truth not to blind us with our shame, but to show us the way out of our shame. This is what he says. It's just absolutely brilliant. He says, God never speaks to his people about sin except with the purpose of saving them from it. And notice, he says, the same light that shows the sin will show the way out of it. This is what Jesus is saying is a primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit shines the light of God's unchanging truth in our dark hearts and our dark world. But now notice, secondly, in verses 12 through 14, the Holy Spirit continues the redeeming work of Jesus. This is the thrust of the text. That is, while Jesus is gone between his first and second coming. In this time between, in the meantime, the Holy Spirit continues the redeeming work of Jesus. Look at verses 12 through 14. Jesus continues his words of goodbye by saying this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, notice in this text, 
that the Holy Spirit not only shines the light of truth in our dark minds and hearts and world, but notice the emphasis around the word glorify. This is key to grasp. That the Holy Spirit spotlights Jesus. That's just what he means by the word glory. The Holy Spirit keeps the focus on Jesus. Just like Jesus, the Son keeps the focus on the Father and gives the Father the front seat of honor, the Holy Spirit gives Jesus, the Son, the front seat of honor. Now, in a biblically sound and spiritually healthy local church or parachurch environment, the Holy Spirit is always given a high place of importance. But Jesus is always given prominence. The Holy Spirit keeps the bright spotlight on Jesus. And if we miss this, often toxic faith and abuse follows. By doing so, the Holy Spirit, and focusing on Jesus, continues the hopeful, redeeming work of Jesus in the world. Notice verse 12. Do you see it? Jesus emphasizes the Holy Spirit will complete what Jesus has done. Uh, I often listen to talk radio, sports radio, and sometimes Christian radio. I hope that doesn't throw you off. Uh, when I'm driving, I'm not always praying. Um, I probably should be, but uh, I sort of love kind of moving around between sports radio and talk radio and Christian radio. And there's a song on the Christian radio I often hear, kind of the top 40 song, and it goes like this. Let me see redemption win. Recognize that? Let me see the struggle end. Now, the hopefulness in the midst of our brokenness points to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in this, that redemption will win as the Holy Spirit teaches us and builds Jesus' church until Jesus returns. We see this in Acts chapter 2 in a massive way, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in birthing the church. We see it all the way through the epistles in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit not only gives us new birth, he transforms us in spiritual formation and Christ-likeness and takes the gospel mission to the world. Now, if you were here this morning and you're struggling to believe that the Christian faith is true, and, and this is a struggle for many of us, let me just mention something quickly. One of the greatest empirical evidences to believe in Christianity is not just the empty tomb of Jesus. I think that's the ultimate evidence. But right on the heels of the empty tomb is the full church for 2,000 years. The thriving global church. There is no way that the local church for 2,000 years could be what it is in a flourishing way around the world against all odds of survival without a supernatural birth and a supernatural sustenance every day through the Spirit. The church often, me too, pastors, often fail to live up to God's design and desire for us. We must say that. But the local church with its warts and all is compelling evidence of the truth of the Christian faith that Jesus has risen and the Holy Spirit has come in power. This summer as a church family, we're asking the question, does it really matter what we believe? And we have said over and over again, and I hope your hearts resonate with this, that the Christian faith is not just proper behavior, it is proper belief. Christ's community, as a part of the Evangelical Free Church of America of 2,000 plus churches, we believe that doctrine matters. That sound doctrine matters. 
And when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the personal Holy Spirit, we believe that sound doctrine matters. And this is our doctrinal statement. I want to read it for you. It's in your, no, uh, your little card that you were given for the series. If you pick one up for your Bible. But let me read it slowly. We believe that the Holy Spirit, in all that he does, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners. And in him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells. He illuminates. He guides. He equips. And he empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. Now, there is a great deal of important truth for all of us to unpack in this text of our doctrinal statement. But let me just highlight a couple things, and if you want to talk more, talk to one of our staff or elders about it. Let me make a couple observations. You will notice the centrality of Jesus' teaching that should be the central basis of any ministry of the Holy Spirit in this statement. You will notice the language that is very carefully crafted, glorifying Jesus, convicting the world of sin, indwelling, illuminating, guiding, and so forth. This comes right out of the upper room discourse, as it should. Notice also what this statement says that Jesus does not specifically say in this text, but the Scriptures teach it from Genesis to Revelation. And that is that the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners like you and me. He brings new creation life to our lives. Regeneration, y'all, it's a big word, right? We don't use it very much. But it's really important. It means to be created brand new, to be given brand new life. See, the good news of the gospel, which God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit make possible in your life and in mine, is that lost and broken sinners like you and me are not merely less lost or somehow made better sinners, but are rather found. We are rescued and we are made brand new in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us new birth. And not only new birth, the Holy Spirit, increasingly as we are obedient and surrendered to Christ, forms us into greater Christ-likeness of life. See, the good news in Jesus' sad goodbye in this text is though you and I need big-time help, the big-time helper is here. So how does the helper help us? Third question. And the disciples or friends of Jesus must have been asking this question in their confusion and powerlessness and hopelessness and sadness here. Why does Jesus primarily describe the third person of the Trinity not as the Spirit, not as the Ruach, not as the Numa, but the Ezra, the Helper. Why does Jesus do this? Why does John take these Hebrew and Aramaic words and translate it into the Greek word parakletos? Why, why, why? That is the question of this text. I want to suggest an answer. I think it's plausible. I think it's textual, but God ultimately knows. I believe Jesus is giving us a brand new revelation here that was never given yet in Holy Scripture, emphasizing the very personal, intimate, and powerful relationship with God we have in the Holy Spirit. Jesus brings the Spirit from eternal creation somewhere way out there to write in here 
in our lives, in our local church fellowship. This is the Holy Spirit up close and personal. And I'd like to remind all of us of three truths that flow out of this text this week and to carry it with us. First, Jesus teaches us the helper, the Holy Spirit, is with us. He is there with us. Now, you may be feeling weak, lonely, challenged as you face this week. I don't know what your week has for you. But you may be feeling a deep sense of being very much alone. And loneliness in my life and in your life, I think, is one of the most difficult aches of the human heart. Why? Because as image bearers of the triune God, we were created with relationships in mind. And perhaps this week you have experienced, I know several of you have in different ways, a sad goodbye in your life. It may be a sad goodbye and a breakup of a friendship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, saying goodbye to a job you loved, or the loss of a loved one. Maybe you feel the loneliness of infertility when all the children are laughing around you with joy. Or a difficult marriage. Or you are feeling unimportant in your marriage. Or you're not precious to your spouse and there is this stalking fear of being alone. While the feeling of loneliness is agonizing to the human soul, if you are a Christian, you are never alone. One of Jesus' great provisions for our loneliness is how the Holy Spirit indwells not only us as individuals, if we are a Christian, but a local church community and gives us true connection with others. Holy Spirit's comforting presence is not just something we experience individually. The language of this text is written with plurals. It is also something we experience collectively as we live life together and love others together in the power of the Holy Spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the martyred German pastor who's such a brilliant writer and such a model for us, in his classic book, Life Together, says this and describes the church as the community of the Spirit. It's beautiful. He says, in the community of the Spirit, there burns the bright love of brotherly service. When we look At Romans chapter 12, the Bible speaks a great deal about the person and work of the Holy Spirit because of the Spirit's importance. The Apostle Paul reminds us that together in the life of the Spirit, we are the body of Christ, that we need each other, and that the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts, supernatural gifts for the common good. So if you are a Christian here this morning, you have been given a spiritual gift or gifts Not for your spiritual, personal benefit, but to manifest the bright love of brotherly service to others in our local church community. That may be a listening ear, a safe place of confidentiality and prayer. It may be to bear one another's burdens. It may be this week to encourage someone who is faint-hearted. It may be to bring healing to another who is hurting or to impart wisdom to one who is floundering in their Christian faith and life. So what spiritual gift or gifts have you been given? 
And how does God want to utilize those this week? You may be here this morning and you're feeling very fearful. Perhaps you're facing this week some very scary challenges or circumstances. It may be a doctor's appointment. It may be your finances, your relationships, your family, or at your job. And if you are honest, you simply do not know what to do or what you're going to make of it. Jesus reminds us that you are not alone. The Lord God, the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is your shepherd. And he promises that you will not be in want of any good thing. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the helper is always with you. The Holy Spirit is your constant 24-7 life companion. He is always with you. But he's not always, always with you. He also guides you in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. He guides you. Jesus emphasizes this in this text. We hear a lot about life coaches. And I think life coaches is a good career. So if you're a life coach, that's a cool thing. But we must not forget that the Holy Spirit is our ultimate life coach. And as you look at the week ahead, perhaps the greatest concern of your heart and the greatest need in your life is guidance for a decision that you know you don't have the wisdom to make. It may be at work, a personnel issue, a new marketing initiative, a difficult person you have to deal with this week. Students, it may be guidance about your fall class schedule, or whether to pursue a sport you love, or how to respond to a friend or a group of friends who are pressuring you to do something you know God does not want you to do. So where do you look for wisdom to guide you in decisions large and small in life? Yes, we look to our parents and our wise friends. We may read a book or an article, but the very first place we should go is wisdom from God's holy word. And as we read God's word, the Holy Spirit illuminates it and brings it home to our specific need for that moment as we pray. The Holy Spirit guides us specifically how to apply God's Word to our particular need. What is your need? What is your situation right now? And the Holy Spirit will intercede for you with groanings to deeper words. I love how author Dallas Willard, you know I loved him when he was alive. And how he shaped Christ's community and his writing and his philosophy and his, write, and his readings. But Dallas Willard puts it really well. He says, the Bible is all about human life with God. With God. God's word calls us to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to be in complete surrender to Him as our Lord. Spirit-filled life is a 24-7 life that profoundly connects Sunday worship with your Monday work. The Holy Spirit guides and empowers us for our vocations, whatever they are, each and every day. Whether that vocation is school caring for your family at home, volunteering in the community, or serving a company at the office. The Spirit-filled life finds its greatest focus in what we do every day and empowering us to do it for the glory of Christ. So no matter where you are, the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit takes the longing we have 
our longing heart for Jesus, the surrendered heart for Jesus, and he enables us to live out Jesus' ways. Not simply the way we think we should live our life, but God's will for us. And notice the Holy Spirit is not only with us to guide us, he is there to empower us with supernatural power. Christian life, friends, is not easy. It's not even difficult. It is impossible to live unless there is supernatural empowerment from the Spirit of God. And the Helper has come in a big way to help us. From the beginning to the end of the Christian life, it is a supernatural journey. We can't come to Jesus Christ on our own unless the Holy Spirit draws us. We can't be conformed to Christ's likeness unless the Holy Spirit forms us. We can't be the local church God has called us to be unless the Holy Spirit works among us. We can't share our faith with others without the Holy Spirit emboldening us. And we cannot do the work we have been called to do every day without the Holy Spirit's power. So will we surrender fully to the Spirit's work in and through us today? You say, well, the Holy Spirit empowers. How do you know that? How do you know the Spirit is at work in my life? Let me suggest a couple of things. We see the fruit of the Spirit emerge in our life. For example, when we are unable to forgive someone who has hurt us deeply, that's the Spirit's work. When we have the power to say no to a persistent temptation, that's the Holy Spirit's empowerment. When we're very fearful and anxious at what lies ahead, we experience peace to go through it, that's the Spirit's work in our life. When we are able to do our work creatively and well for the glory of God in our workplace, that's the Holy Spirit at work in our life. So if you are feeling discouraged in your Christian faith, if you are feeling inadequate or overwhelmed as a dad, a mom, a grandma, or a student, I have good news for you. Jesus tells us, our experience validates us, that the Holy Spirit is with you. He is there to guide you. He is there to empower you to face anything that's coming this week. So friends, let's not hinder the Spirit's work. Let's not grieve or quench the Spirit by our disobedience, our lack of faith, our divided loyalties, our distractions, our indisciplines, but let us in repentance and faith ask the Holy Spirit to do a new work in your life and in my life, in our church and every campus for the glory of Christ. So let's slow down. Let's breathe deeply for a moment. Let's enter community with a spirit-led desire to become whole together in Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing in John 16, verse 7, Jesus says something that's so outrageous. He says, it's your, to your advantage I go away. And the disciples are scratching their head and you're scratching your head. How can that be? How is it better that Jesus would go away? In the last book of the Bible, the same writer John gives us a tantalizing glimpse of why it's better for Jesus to go away. And that is, a place is being prepared for you and me by Jesus himself, where there will be no more death, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, and no more goodbyes. Jesus does not abandon us he only says goodbye for a time so that we would never have to say goodbye again. Let's pray. 
Holy Spirit, helper, advocate, comforter, and friend. Do a new work in our lives. In our community, our city, our church, our nation, and our world. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, use us, we pray. Amen.